Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Parshas Vayera. Action-packed, exciting, and perhaps arguably the most challenging Parsha in the entire Torah, in the entire Tanakh. We're going to study together something we've never studied yet previously. That's the Akedah. Akedah's Yitzchak. I think that the more... As time goes on and we uh, supposedly become... Uh, the more we're influenced by Western thinking and the more supposedly civilized we become, the harder it is to understand or explain or defend in some circumstances the story of Akedas Yitzchak. It's one of those uh, moments of truth when we read it that kind of, uh, there are those moments of truth in which we have to define ourselves. Is our thinking, our philosophy, our attitude determined by modern Western thinking, morality, contemporary uh, morality and and mores, or as a Jew, as Avram Avinu, as the progeny of, of the, our great patriarch. So that's what we're going to study today. But first, let's, as we always do, give a quick overview of the Parsha. A quick overview of the Parsha, and then we'll get into the Psukim of the, uh, of the Akedah, a very, very difficult uh, Parsha. So our Parsha begins, Avram is recovering the end of last week's Parsha at an advanced age. He had a difficult and painful surgery. There was no anesthesia. He wasn't put under, but... Uh, performed the circumcision on himself. It's the third day, which supposedly is the most painful day post-surgery. Avram is sitting outside waiting for guests. HaKadosh Baruch God shows compassion, brings out a baking hot sun to keep the guests away so Avram can recover until God realizes it's causing more pain for Avram to not be able to host than it would for him to have to host on the third day after surgery. Of course, the three angels in the guise of men arrive. Avram interrupts his conversation with the Almighty and hosts these men. I won't uh, repeat what I've said in the past. We learn, It's greater to offer hospitality than it is to even continue a conversation with the Almighty. The question is why? You're having a dialogue with the Creator of the universe. Could you imagine you're talking to a king, a president, a dignitary, and, uh, and guests arrive. You're not going to tell them, give me a couple minutes. You're not going to say to your son, as Avram later does, to the Na'ar, to Yishmael, get them a drink and tell them I'll be with them in a couple minutes. I'm talking to God. No, Avram tells God, God, i got to go. And he goes to talk to them. Why? We discussed it in the past for another time. But anyway, he moves on. He takes care of these guests. It turns out that they're not men at all. They're angels, three angels. Each come with their own purpose and their own mission. And, uh, and the first is, of course, to make a promise to Sarah. The promise to Sarah is, despite the physiological anomalies because we know from last week's Pasha the Sarah ain't Vlad the Gemara says I feel the base Vlad ain't la she didn't even have a uterus in the natural order it was impossible for her to have a child and yet come the angels and say you're going to become pregnant Sarah of course rejects them at first doesn't accept their she laughs they say why'd you laugh she said what are you talking about I didn't laugh and uh, we've also studied in the past, you can listen to all of these on Y.U. Torah, but a different year in the past we studied this, that if you look at the Targum Unklus, the way Unklus translates Tzchok, Tzadik Ches Kuf, he translates it differently in the beginning to what Avram does later. Because later when the angel comes to Avram, he also is guilty of the same thing. In fact, that's how they name him. His name is Yitzchak because they respond with Tzchok. So why are we so critical of Sarah for responding with Tzchok if that's how Avram responds later and that's indeed his very name? So we showed that if you look at Unklos, you'll see Tzchok is defined differently in the two places. Early on with Sarah, it's defined as sarcasm, cynical. Sarah was a cynic. She was cynical. Angel comes and says, despite your age, you're going to be having a kid. Ha! It wasn't a laughter of, of joy, a laughter of disbelief. 
It was a laughter of cynicism, skepticism, sarcasm. With Avram, it's a laughter of joy, of disbelief. Really, it's impossible. It's unimaginable. But if you say it, that's incredible. And that's a fact his name. It's a very powerful lesson about, about uh, the negativity of cynicism. Avram learns about... One quick one. They said when, she, when the Malachim said, Where's, where is Sarah? Yeah. And Rashi says because they wanted to send her... To bring out the Braha, beauty. But they hadn't eaten bread because she navigated... What does Rashi say? Rashi says because they want Avram to recognize that she's so tznius. Yeah, but those are because they want to send her the Koshal Bracha. Where's that Rashi? But if she never washed, they never washed because she never gave, they never gave him the bread, why would they need to send her a Koshal Bracha? Hold on. Which Rashi? Which Rashi? Hold on. You know, ask me afterwards. Let's get through. So the uh, next, the messengers come to tell about Sodom, the destruction of Sodom, the Amora, unlike Noah who passively enters his ark and only cares about his family, Avram responds, and I think this is a very powerful lesson for us too today, Avram doesn't say, let them rot. They're like stone vamora. They, they are stone vamora. That was a joke. But they're stone vamora. They're the most corrupt, licentious, uh, immoral, unethical society. They become the... I mean, think about what stone vamora are. They are the terminology we use in our vernacular. If you want to describe a society as, as decadent and as immoral, you say they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're stone vamora. And how does Avram respond? You have to... God, what are you doing? First of all, it's fascinating. Again, it's not, it's not what we're going to study today. But God feels He can't do it without first telling Avram. He has to first inform Avram. Well, if I love Avram, and Avram is my man, can I possibly cover up? Can I possibly deny? Can I possibly not share with Avram what I'm going to do? I gave this land to Avram. Don't I owe it to him to let him know? It's a lesson in courtesy. Even God practices common courtesy. I promised Avram this land. I'm about to do something drastic on his land. Don't I owe him the courtesy of letting him know what I'm going to do? So God tells Avram, and Avram responds with great lobbying. First lobbyist. Great advocacy. He says, what do you mean? What if they're righteous? How could you possibly do that? And we all know the conversation that ensues back and forth in which Avram can't even produce a minimum of ten and therefore concedes that God is going to destroy Stone Vamora. Stone Vamora are destroyed, Lot is saved, Lot's wife, and, uh, and so on. The uh, Parsha then continues. Um, Avram sees the destruction of Stone Vamora. He wakes up and he sees... Um, Lot goes and settles on the mountain with his two daughters and there's a uh, immoral act that takes place in the uh, shadow of the destruction of stone um, between Lot and his daughters which result in the birth of Moab and Ammon which, again not for now, but is fascinatingly the origin of Jewish monarchy and becomes the root of, of the Davidic dynasty and of Mashiach. David Amalek descends from Rus. Rus is Rus HaMoviah, she's a Moabite. Who comes from David? Nothing less than Moshiach. If you trace back our Moshiach, he comes from the most impure source, from the most impure act, from this uh, horrible union between Lot and his daughter. Why is that so? Or how do we understand that? For another time. Avram's in Grar. Uh, Avram travels to the Negev, to Grar. And uh, <clears throat> here they try this uh, ploy again. Worked in Egypt. Avram al-Sari ishto Achosihi. 
How did he possibly repeat this? The Ramban says it was a mistake then when they let, went to Egypt to begin with and this ploy, yet Avram repeats it again, says this is my sister, so that Avimelech, the king of Gar, takes as a wife until God strikes him with a plague and he realizes something is wrong and confronts Avram. Avimelech appeases Avram and Sarah sends them on their way and, uh, and there's a tefillah. Avram prays for Avimelech that he is spared. The promise comes true. Hashem pakad Sarah kasher amar as we read on Rosh Hashanah, that uh, Sarah becomes pregnant, and indeed a baby boy is born. Yitzchak, Avram uh, gives Yitzchak his bris at the age of eight days, as God had commanded. Avram is a hundred years old when Yitzchak is born. And uh, and again, you look at the conversation. Right? Again, you have this tzchok, and his name becomes Yitzchak. Hagar and Yishmal are expelled from the home, and uh, Yishmael is saved, right? He looks like he's going to, uh, to die. Um, Avimelech in Beersheva, and that takes up to the 10th trial. Well, we're going to study today, page 100, in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, the story of Akedas Yitzchak, the trial of Yitzchak. Okay. Perak Bez, Pasagal, chapter 22, verse 1. First of all, I saw the story this week, which, of course, the story had to come out the week of Parshas Vayera in uh, India this week I don't know if anyone saw the story in India this week an 8 eight month old infant was axed to death by his father who said he committed the gruesome act to please the Hindu goddess Durga the horrific incident happened in a village in Barbanaki district of the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh Uh, because he he sacrificed his 8 month old to God the Hindu god asked him to, so he took an axe and he killed his child. He killed his son after being ordered to, so by the goddess. Hamant had planned to kill the infant son soon after birth. He thought that the sacrifice would bring happiness in the lives of the childless couple who visited the godless Kali temple. The culprit's wife saw, so I'm reading you from the International Business Times of India. The culprit's wife said she saw the, her husband hitting her son with an axe twice on his neck. Though he tried to escape from the spot, local people got hold of him, handed him over to police sent for medical examination, mentally imbalanced, and so on. Um, he axed the toddler in front of an idol of goddess in a temple built in his house. He's been charged with his son's murder. The son died. We read the story, we're horrified. We read the story, it's unimaginable. We read the story, we can't possibly contemplate how it could possibly happen, how someone could be so barbaric, immoral, unethical. What in the world was this man thinking? Perech of Bez, Pasuk, it's after these things. What are these things? Rashi quotes the Medrash about a Satan who came to God and incited God. You have to test Avraham again. Whatever the context is, you always have Vahi Dvarim, always connects it to the earlier issue. So again, I don't want to spend our time on that, but you can look at Rashi. And what happens? God decides, Nisa es Avraham. What is the word Nisa lenasot? What does it mean? To test. God decides He's going to test Avraham. According to the art scroll, it says the 10th trial. Interestingly, Rabbi Yonah says that's not the 10th trial. The 10th trial comes in next week's parasha. He... We know that we have a tradition from the Mishnah and Pirkei Avos, there were ten trials that Avram overcame. Now you go to the text and you try to identify which are the ten trials. Rabbeinu Yonah counts them differently and he sees the tenth and final trial, not this week's Parsha, next week's Parsha. What does he see as the tenth trial? The negotiation between Avraham and Ephron on the purchase of Mara Samach Pela. 
having to deal with a low life like Ephron Hachiti, who's duplicitous, who says one thing and means another, having to have patience, having to put up with him, having to take a moral high ground and be ethical in business dealings with someone who's such a low life, says Rabbi Yona, that was the tenth trial of Avraham. Interesting. But Artskrohil delineates this as a tenth trial. Vailokim Nisa es Avraham. What is a trial? Why would God test us? Many of us, many of our family members are tested. Health tests, infertility tests, loneliness tests, uh, financial challenge tests. We have tests in the world. Why would God test us? If you love your child, your children, you make life easy for them. Bikesh Yaakov Leishe Beshava. Yaakov wanted to live peacefully and tranquility, and God said no. And here God tests Avram, He tests those whom He loves. Why would God test us? So we could talk about this for hours. I just want to um, allude to it for now because the Mephorshim will jump on it right here. So the Sforno says, Nisas Avraham, Kevan Shiyeh Bepoel Ohev, Viare, Kemoshahaya Bekoach, Uvize Yid Meyosa Leboroshu Tov Laolam Bepoel. Says the Sforno, and we'll see the Ramban says the exact same thing. Every one of us have, we live two dimensions simultaneously. There is the p- potential version of us, there's who we have the capacity to be. We have a certain potential. Our intelligence, our predispositions, our abilities, our character, our creativity, our appearance, our circumstance, all place us, position us with certain potential in life. There's the potential us. There's the image before God of who we can be, what we can achieve. And then there's the real us. How do we go from potential to reality? Says the Sforno, through tests. You see, when all is easy, when it comes to us easily, then we remain complacent. When we're pushed into a corner, when we're challenged, we dig deep, we discover aspects about ourselves that we may never previously have known. We discover all kinds of things, all kinds of potential within us that never would become actual if we were never tested. So says the Sfarna, we'll see the Ramban, the same thing. It's an incredible expression of affection and love that God tests us because it allows us to reach our potential and to become who we are capable of being. And says the Sfarno, that's godliness. Because God's goal for us is to be like Him. God does not live in potential. God lives in reality. God's existence is not framed by potential. God's existence is expressed in reality. God wants us not to go to our grave as having had wonderful potential that was unrealized. He wants us to realize it. And how do we realize it? By being tested. Says the Ramban, What does it mean to be tested according to me? Says the Ramban, Because a person has options, a person has choices. A person can face a test and take the easy way out, or a person can be confronted by a challenge and dig deep and overcome. So therefore, Yikra Nisayan Mitzara Menusa, Aval Menasei Yisbarach Yitzava Bo, Lahotzi, that's the expression of the famous Ramban. The purpose is Minakoach El Apoel. Koach means potential. Poel means real. You know, God doesn't want us to just have the reward of having a good heart. Oh, I have good intentions. I mean well. In my heart, I'm good. I really want to do the right thing. We gave a drush about this during Elul. Right? The psychologist from 
25 years ago who wrote that article. We don't relate to people in reality based on their heart, on their good intentions. We relate to them based on their actions. And God relates to us not based on, I really mean well, I want well, I wish well, I hope well, I think well. That's all well and good. But what do we do? How do we act? How do we behave? So to draw it from the potential to the real, to give us the reward for the Maisa Tov, not just the Lev Tov, God tests us. He doesn't test the wicked because they're going to ignore him. They're not going to discover something good. In fact, they may discover a negative potential. So God leaves them alone. Be complacent. Be apathetic. But those he loves, he tests because he wants us to be great. I think in parenting we do that also. Because we love our children, we don't test them in the sense of making their life difficult, but we challenge them. If we replace the word test with challenge, or if we replace the word test with opportunity, we're trying to help them grow. Sometimes they have to discover for themselves and not us have, have, have us bail them out. Every test in the Torah is for the good of the one tested, says the Ramban. We grow. We expand, we stretch. As a result, we become better. Many, many, many years ago, I read an article in the New York Times business section that was actually trying to express this idea of overcoming challenges in the following metaphor. So there was a wealthy man who hosted a dinner party at his home, and he was giving a tour of his estate before they sat down for dinner. And in the backyard of his estate, he had many different pools, and one of the pools was filled with dangerous sharks and piranhas and all kinds of, of, uh, of uh, dangerous fish. So he jokingly said to them, I've shared this before, that anyone who could swim from one end to the other and make it out alive, I'll share my wealth, I'll give you whatever you want. Ha ha ha, everybody laughs, they move on to continue their tour, and they hear a splash. And they turn around and there's a man, and he's swimming like crazy, and he's avoiding the piranhas and the sharks and the dangerous fish, and he makes it to the other end miraculously alive, and he climbs out, and he's standing there, clothing dripping wet, and the wealthy man turns to him and he says, I cannot believe you did that. That was extraordinary. I never imagined someone would take me up on it. Tell me, I have to make good on my promise. What is it you want? What is your wish? And the man who was soaking wet turns to him and says, I wish only one thing. The one thing I want is to know who pushed me in. <laughs> and what's the idea? What was the message? If you'd say to those standing at the edge of a pool, can you swim to the other side and make it out alive? Say, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? There's no way. There's absolutely no way. But sometimes we get pushed and we have no choice. And then we discover within ourselves things we never knew that we had. So as I said, we could talk about this for hours on end. I wanted to share that Sforno and the Ramban. Look at the Orachayim HaKadosh. How does it begin? Veha Elohim Nisa is Avraham. Note the Orachayim HaKadosh. What's unusual? The letter Vav. It should have said Elohim. What do you mean Veha Elohim? Amar Veha Elohim. Betosef is Vav. Betosef is Hey. Elohim Nisa is Avraham. Lomar, Milvad Nisyona Shekadmu, Hosif Lenasoso Bigvuras Adin Nisayon Atsum. This test, oh, this one's in another category altogether. Page 100 in the article. This test is categorically different. This is another world. This is not leave your home and I'm going to give you wealth and fame, as we saw in the beginning of last week's Parsha. This is Lahavdil, this man in India, perceived he was being told, take your son your only son, this man in India, this was his only child, take an axe and go slaughter him. This is totally different.
and yet Avram is willing to do it, he discovers a, a expression of faith which was certainly unprecedented and perhaps is unparalleled. So let's get into it, let's look at these psukim. And I'll tell you in advance, in looking at these psukim, that we're going through the Mephorshim. And there's something astounding to me. I mean, in general, our early commentators, our medieval commentators in particular, Rashi, the Ramban, the Rashbam, the Ibn Ezra, um, the Sforno, our medieval commentaries, when they author their commentary, they're dealing with the text. They're dealing with the shifts in grammar. They're dealing with aberrations. They're dealing with unusual statements. They're dealing with the order, the juxtaposition. They're dealing with the text. It's fascinating that none of them composed a commentary that looked at it in a more global sense. The way that we have today, Rabbi Menachem Liebteg and Rabbi Obin Nun, and we have all of these great um, essayists who write elaborate from 30,000 feet looking at globally the text, plus what they never did was ask moral questions. None of them stop and say, what? What? How could it be? God told Avram, what? What's going on here? How do we understand and what does it mean for us? And They were dealing with the text. Does that mean that they didn't struggle with these issues? Does it mean that they had all the answers? Does it mean it was so obvious to them that it need not be said? Or does it mean that it was a different literary genre of the time or they approached text in a different way than we do? Or the needs of explicating it were different than they are today. I don't know exactly. I have to go back to Revel, the graduate school of YU, and study these things, which I never did. I argue we all go to school at the wrong stage of our life. When I had the opportunity to study these things, I had no interest in them. And now that I have such an interest in these things, who has time to go to school? So we totally go to school. We should graduate high school and go to work for a certain amount of years and have enough money to go to school and finally when we're mature enough and sophisticated enough and interested enough, study the things that we have an interest in and we do it all backwards. But anyway, that's why we're here, okay? We've got to get someone who knows what they're talking about then and I'll sit on that side of the desk and listen. So, you were being tested in those years. Oh, I was being tested, that's for sure, exactly. So, I don't know how well I studied for those tests, but I was being tested. I crammed, I crammed for those tests. Yeah, but I don't believe that we're smarter than Rashi. And I don't believe we're more ethical or moral than Rashi. So the question is, and again, I don't want to spend time on this, but how did hundreds of years go by of our commentaries reading Akedas Yitzchak and being caught up in textual anomalies and nobody stops and says, I need to write a 10-page article about the moral dilemma or question. Is it that Avram's faith was so obvious to them? Is it, I don't know. Maybe. Right. Right. We li- right. Correct. In other words, there was no field of psychology exactly, yeah. then. There were hard sciences then. Right. We know that the Rambam and the Ramban and Rabbi Yehuda Levi were all physicians. There were hard sciences, right. but there was no psychology. The prism through which we analyze this, the social prism, the uh, psychological prism, the societal prism, the moral prism, that language didn't exist then. Good. But with that, it still troubles me because you want to dig back and say, well, how did they? So I just, I think it's a fascinating thing. So we're going to go through because this class deals with the text. I'll try to also draw from more contemporary sources as well. Right. No question about it. It's a continuum. We, it's not a beginning of a new conversation. We're continuing their conversation. But there's such a glaring omission from their conversation that it begs the question. 
it's not a excuse me. It's not a question that there aren't necessarily answers to. It's just I think a at least for me a very compelling question. So let's let's dig right in. Pasuk base verse number two. So God begins. Vayomer kachna es bincha es yechidcha asher ahavta es yitzchak. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak. Right away, you should be bothered by a textual question. What do you mean, your son? How many sons did Avram have? What do you mean, Yechidcha, your one son? What do you mean, the one that you love? Yitzchak. Velech l'chal Eretz HaMoriah, go to this place, ve'alei Hashem la'ola, and offer, raise him up there, al-achad he'harim, on one of the mountains, asher omar ilacha, that I will tell you. What is God playing games? Is God teasing Avram that I will tell you? Here we go again. Lech lecha me'artzacha. What's with all these uh, mystery journeys and trips? He put me on a plane. I don't even know where it's going. Maybe he felt uh, that because of the length of time he's going to get to the ultimate destination uh, might hypothetically change Avram's outlook on, on this. Uh, oh, right. So Rashi says that. We'll see all these Rashis. If he told him where he was going and the length of time, he might have given him an opportunity to want to back out, which is remarkable that God wasn't 100% confident that Avraham was going to step up. So, Kachna, look at Rashi, I'm sorry, Pasuk Beis, Eina Elalashon Bakasha. Amalo, Bivakasha Mimcha, Amodli Bezoa Nisayon. God says to Avraham, please, do this for me. I know what I'm about to ask you is not easy. Please, no. The tests that we face sometimes is God saying, please, do this, I want to help you grow from the potential to the real to actualize a capacity within you you may not even be aware of. So Amar Lo it's like an icebox in here. Amar Lo Bivakasha mimcha Ashalo yomru arishonos lohayu bahen mamish. And why did God want this? Rashi tells us. Why does God ask such an extreme measure? Says Rashi something incredible. Because by stepping up and completing this test Avram will show that all of his other actions and behaviors and choices and tests are genuine, are authentic. What does that mean? So let me put it in a different context of what a test is also. We all have predispositions. There are some people who are charitable because really they were born stingy and they overcame that urge to be stingy and they've learned the blessing of charity. And there are other people who are born charitable. It comes easily to them. There's no struggle, there's no challenge, it's the easiest thing in the world. There's some people who are patient. They, they can't raise their voice if they were told to scream, they couldn't. And they're patient and they're quiet and they're soft-spoken and if they were offered $10 million, they couldn't raise their voice. And there are other people who are predisposed to scream and to yell and if they've worked on themselves tirelessly, they've toiled such that they never raise their voice. When a person is living a virtuous life, how do you know if the virtue they're living is because it's real, they've worked on themselves, it's difficult, or because it's what comes naturally to them? They have that gift and therefore there's very little that's remarkable about it. So if you look at our Avos Imos, if you look at our great people, God says, I'm going to test you by asking you to go opposite what comes naturally for you, because if you're willing to do what comes opposite, of that which is natural to you, then I know that even that which comes natural to you is real for you. So what's Avram's midah? We'll start from the actual, the opposite end. What's Yaakov's midah? What's Yaakov's character trait? Emes, truth. Titain emes Yaakov. Yaakov is identified, associated with honesty. Yaakov cannot tell a lie. 
except what is his whole life riddled by? What does God tell him to do, or through his mother tell him to do when it's time to take a blessing? Lie. Trickery. Distort the truth, right? Rashi, right? Ani, you know, right, okay, fine, it wasn't an outright lie, but clearly it was dishonesty. Why did God ask him to be dishonest? Because how do you know if Yaakov's inclination to be honest all the time is because he genuinely subscribes to the value of honesty or because it's natural to be honest? You know how you know? When God says, I need you to lie. That's how God will know whether the honesty is for me or the honesty is because it comes naturally to you. What's Avram's Mida? Chesed. chesed. Avram loves Chesed. I mean, he's fighting for the people of stone, for God's sakes. The third day after his surgery, and he's in more pain by not having guests than he is from the surgery. Avram loves giving, hosting. He loves it. God says, are you so hospitable because you're imitating me and you love me and you're trying to fulfill my will? Or because it comes naturally to you? How will I know? By asking you to be cruel. If your natural inclination is kindness, I'm going to test you by asking you to be cruel. Because only by leaving that which comes naturally to you, transcending, violating that which comes naturally to you, do I know that even that which comes naturally to you is really directed to me. So that's all in this Rashi. Says God, this test is different than all the others. This tenth test will reveal that the first nine tests weren't just because they came naturally to you, but really they were expressing the greatness of you. Rav Aviner, of Shlomo Aviner, who is the rabbi in the rabbi of Shiloh, not Shiloh, the rabbi of Beit El, and who also uh, is the uh, Rosh Hashiva of Ateras Kohanim in the uh, so-called Muslim quarter of the old city. He writes in his Sefer Tal Chermon. His, uh, he's probably the most prolific author today. Every time I go to Israel in the bookstore, there's five more bookshelves of, of Rav Aviner's books. Not five more books. Five more bookshelves of Rav Aviner books that have come out. So Rav Aviner writes in his Tal Chermon on Chumash. I'll read it to you in the translation. Avram had to give up on everything he felt and understood as a human being. As a most superior human being. He had to erase all his thoughts and ideas all the feeling of goodness in him in order to fulfill God's command. It teaches us in a most drastic and dramatic manner that we do not fulfill God's commandments because it's good for us to do so, or because we understand them, or because we experience pleasantness in their performance, but rather because they are God's commandments. In other words, if we only fulfill the part of what God asks us to do when it's consistent with our understanding, our outlook, our lifestyle, and it feels good, then are we really doing it for God or for ourselves? If we only do that which is compatible with our lives, then are we really doing it for God or are we doing it for ourselves? It's only when we're even willing to stretch. It's only when we're even willing to go against our grain and to do or to believe something which is difficult or inconsistent that we prove that all that we do is really for God. There's a modern contemporary application of Akedah Yitzchak. Like God asked, and by the way, I feel this, I don't want to go on and on about this right now, I may write about this for the weekly, for the blog. Modern man, we, 2013, by the way, more than 2000, more than 1990 or 80, I think, are living in a time which the Western thought process is forcing us to think in one way, and many of that, those forces that it's forcing us to think are in violation of what the Torah wants us to think. 
And it's a true moment of truth for us. How will we view issues of deviance, deviant behavior, issues of identity, issues of morality, where the world is, is broadening the definitions of morality. In fact, not only the world is an olam hafach, it is an absolute upside-down world today. It's an upside-down world today. Today, right, 25 years ago, you were immoral if you did certain things. Today, you're, it's not that you're neutral if you still think that, that, that those behaviors are immoral. If you think those behaviors are immoral, you're the one who's immoral. You're immoral. If you're critical of somebody with a certain lifestyle who does certain things, you're immoral. You're not entitled to think that way. The forces that are up against our children when they're going to go to college on the modern university scene, the forces that we're up against in the workplace and with our friends and in a Shabbos table. But if you embrace a view that's critical of certain choices you're not entitled to that view. You're immoral for having that view. So the very behavior that 20 years ago was itself immoral is not only today so permissive, if you have a different view of it, you're immoral. If you think that gay marriage, and I'm not getting lost in whatever the views on gay marriage, but I'm giving it as an example. If you're opposed to gay marriage, it's no longer that, well, you're, you don't get it. It's that you're immoral, you're insensitive. I had this conversation at a lunch alarm. A group of physicians told me that I'm insensitive and I'm offensive because you don't under... If you could view... If you have a problem with gay marriage, you're immoral. So that's our Akedas Yitzchak. Are we going to be able to rise above, put aside our inclinations... By the way, go into any yeshiva high school today and ask a yeshiva high school and ask the kids who's for gay marriage or who's against gay marriage, 99% will be for it. And 90... What? It's a non-issue. It's a non-issue in that they don't even contemplate you could be against it. They're, they're for it. But it's more than neutral. They subscribe to the view that if you're against it, there's something wrong with you. And if it's a choice between Judaism which says that it's wrong, or my modern Western thinking which is civilized and, and, and which is, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, equality, and then, then I'm going with that, not with Torah. This is our Akedas Yitzchak, right? Not Rav Avinir's words. Sometimes God asks us to set aside our way of thinking, our world's way of thinking, everything that comes naturally for us to think, and to embrace His way of thinking. And it's in those moments where it's difficult to do so, and challenging to do so, where we prove, you know, if I only believe what God says when it's compatible with what I want to believe, then am I really believing what God says, or am I just subscribing to what I believe? But if I'm willing to subscribe to what God believes, even when it's incompatible with what I am drawn to believe, that's when I show my faithfulness to God. That's our modern Akedas Yitzchak. Okay, that's my little editorial, uh, got that off my chest. Now we can go further. Whew, okay, much better. Kachna. So God said, Kachna, Rashi said, this is an incredibly hard test. As Bincha, we asked, what do you mean? Avram has more than one son. As Bincha, Amar lo, Shnei banim yeshli. Avram says to God, what do you mean, take my son? I got two sons. So Amar lo, God says, you're one son. Amar lo, Zeyachid li'imo, Zeyachid li'imo. What do you mean? I have two one sons. This one is the only son of this mother, and this one is the only son of that mother. Amar lo, so God says, oh, Asher hafta. take the son you love. Now, by the way, what would we think Avram would respond? Oh, you mean Yitzchak. 
But that's not what he says. I love both of them. Right? That's a, that's a powerful lesson too. This is Avram Avinu. Avram defends Sodom. And Avram talks to the idolaters of his time. That's why it's called the Sefer Hayashar. The, the book of... This is, uh, Avram is called Yashar because he could talk to anyone, even if they're different than he. And he says he loves Yishmael like he loves Av- He can't identify. Who's the son? The one you love? God, I love both my sons. Equally. Amar lo is Yitzchak. So God has no choice but to say, okay, already, Yitzchak. V'lama lo gila lo So why didn't God begin by telling him, take Yitzchak? Shalala arvavo pitam v'tazuach taito alav v'titarif. V'kidei l'chavi v'alav v'sa mitzvah. B'litin l'schara kol dibor v'dibor. By drawing it out, he expands the reward Avram is destined to get because he compounds the entire process of the test. Eretz HaMoriah, where is this a description of? Yerushalayim, Har HaMoriah. Har HaMoriah is Har HaBayis, is the Temple Mount. This is the place, the Evan HaShasiyah, the stone from which God created the entire world, which is the place of the Akedah, which is the place that Yaakov has his dream of the angels and the ladder. This is our Temple Mount. This is the, the origin, Eretz HaMoriah. The Balaturib says, El Eretz HaMoriah is Begematria, the same numerical value as Birushalayim. V'ha'aleyu, notes Rashi, Lo Amar Shechateyu, God didn't say Shechtim, slaughter him, He said, Ha'aleyu. There was a hint in the command itself that God was never going to tell him to kill him. Because God in the command never explicitly said, take a knife and axe, slit his throat. God said, raise him up. As a Ola. You can raise him literally, you can raise him figuratively. Ultimately, God bent it figuratively. So in built into the command, the commandment was the was the out. Echad Harim, one of the mountains, says Rashi, Kurjborhu, Mitaya Tzadik and Vachakahmegala. He he um, he keeps them in, in suspense and only later reveals because that increases the reward. Follow me. I'm sending you to a place. If you don't know the destination you're going, it makes the journey much harder. It may, if it's mysterious, it makes it more challenging. So therefore, it gives them greater reward. Okay? Go back and look at the Orachayim HaKadosh. Kachna, perish, means take off umiyad. Belosh elasman. Kachna means now. I'm not giving you time to go home to think about it. I'm not giving you time to pack your belongings. I'm not giving you time to call the great ethicists of your time and debate it. Now, this was part of the trial. And Shoftim, the 11th chapter, when Yiftach makes that terrible promise, you know, when he comes back from a successful war, whoever comes out of the door first, I'll sacrifice, and it's his own daughter, and therefore he doesn't actually kill her, according to most Mepharshim, he places her in solitude in a tower to live on her own. Rapunzel. And she lives on her own. She says, give me two months before you do it. Let me at least have two months. So unlike that test, says the Orachayim, God says here, Kachna, now, go collect your things. I'm sending you on your way. And that is part of the process of the, of the test. Says the Ramban, Kachna, Why is he called Yechidcha, the one son? Rashi said they were both the one son. This one's the one son of this mother, and this one's the one son of that mother. Says the Ramban even more, no. Because Avram was given a promise. Avram, your life work, your legacy, everything you've, you've toiled towards, you have a son to whom you will pass it on. That's the son that I want you to kill. That's the son I want you to kill. Uba Lashon Lahagdil HaMitzvah. 
And this language expands the mitzvah. I mean, picture it for a minute. What's Avram's life been defined by? One day Avram's a kid and he sees the idols of his father. We all know the story. He says, this paganism, this dualism, it doesn't, no, it doesn't make sense. God says there's one God. And he reaches out and he has a relationship with that one God. And what does he do? He's not satisfied by keeping that relationship with the one God to himself. What does Avram do? He gets up on a soapbox everywhere he can. He publishes and he writes and he lectures and he speaks. And he, everywhere he can go, he tries to teach people about this one God. And not only that, what does he teach them about this one God and what he wants from us? Stop leading a selfish life and be selfless. What does God want from us? Chesed. Chesed, chesed, chesed. Chesed, chesed, chesed. So here Avram becomes a very public figure. Avram becomes the world's rabbi, the great preacher of his time. And he's preaching to the world over and over. And is he successful? We studied last week. He's got thousands of followers. He's super successful. The world is following him. And what is he doing? He's preaching, 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 preaching. There's one God and God wants us to do chesed. And now what does God tell him? The great famous public preacher who's been preaching kindness, patience, chesed. God says, I want you to go kill your son. What is he telling him? I want you to kill your legacy. I want you to be the world's greatest hypocrite. I want you to be the most hypocritical person the world ever has or will know. You're the greatest preacher doing everything and I want you now to do something that you're going to be the headline of every newspaper that this, right? We all remember those preachers who later turned out that they were living hidden lifestyles and cried crocodile tears. What do they call them? Tears and, you know, and poured out their... God tells them, I want you to be Tammy Faye Baker. Lahavdil. I want you to be... You've been preaching, you're famous, you're on TV, the world knows you and now I want you, even though you're telling everyone, chesed, go kill your son. Yechidcha. Yechidcha means your legacy, your future, your everything, your whole world. I want you to sabotage your entire world in one moment. And what does Avram say? Okay. Okay. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why. But if that's your plan, okay. He doesn't say anything, but he puts one foot in front of the other. In fact, it's very possible that he doesn't really say that. We'll see that from the Chamalebovitz, uh, hopefully, in a, in a moment. So let's get through so the verses very quickly. to his uh, group that you stay here? Oh, so let's go. Let's go on to the verses. So let's keep going. Pasa Gimel. So Avram doesn't say anything verbally, but with his feet he says much. He wakes up early in the morning, and he, he saddles the donkey, and he takes his two, the two uh, lads... Ita with him. By the way, how old is Yitzchak at this time? 37. Right, we read the Akedah's Yitzchak and we think, oh, little Yitzchak, come, let me change your diaper and put you in the stroller and take you to the Akedah. <laughs> but no, Yitzchak is 37 years old. For another time, there are, there are many individuals through whose eyes we should study this section. It, and it would be fascinating too. We study it through Avram's eyes almost exclusively. Avram and God. Attention between Avram and God. What about Yitzchak? 37 years old. Dad, where are we going? Dad, what's with the axe and the wood? When we get there, Dad, why am I lying down? 37! To put a little perspective, I'm 38. <laughs> Yitzchak was my age. Oh, we'll get to later on. But Yitzchak's my age. And what about Eliezer? 
what am I waiting here with the donkey and where are the two of you going and I'm loyal servant why, why aren't you cluing me in and what's happening here and you come back and did Avram tell Eliezer on the way back <laughs> this incredible thing happened or was it mysterious they went to the top of the mountain they came back and they went home back you know and what about Sarah what about looking this whole thing through Sarah's eyes we skipped it the Orachayim talks about Avram stayed up the whole night the Medrash Tanchuma Koloso Avram Avram spent the entire night pleading with Sarah. The Shvayashkem Avram Baboker wasn't so simple. Avram spent the entire night begging Sarah. God said, I have to, I got to go. She says, I don't really care what God said. This is my son. Are you out of your mind? I waited all these years. This is my son. She didn't know that he didn't kill in the end. That's why the Medrash the beginning of next week's Pasha. She died because she never received word that in the end he was spared. Is so when she sees Avram and Yitzchak go off, she thinks that's the end, and she di- she died. She has a heart attack. Why we have risen early in the morning from the yes. Zrizim makdim and lemitzvus. Yeah. So, but but listen, this tanchuma koloso alayla ya Avram efayis the sar lahaskim imo sheyolichayu lelamda Torah ora boker. He didn't tell the Orachim quotes the tanchuma. She's convincing Sarah to let him go to teach him Torah. It's unclear exactly what the dialogue is, but they're struggling. So we don't study the Akedah through Yitzchak's eyes, Eliezer's eyes, Sarah's eyes. What's really going on? What's really going on here? But through Avram's eyes. So look at, as Faith just said, Pastor Gimel, Vayashkem Nizdariz La Mitzvah. Avram got up early in the morning to perform a mitzvah. We see this as compared to Bilam, or Bilam too, got up to do an Avera. The idea is reason Makdim La Mitzvah. We say that there's a component, you, you do a mitzvah as early as possible. You have a bris early, you have the whole day to do the bris. And some in Israel, they often do the bris in the afternoon. But we emphasize the idea of getting up early. Is that part of the mitzvah? Or is it a separate mitzvah? I want to give a chabur on that topic. It's an interesting nafkamina. There's an opinion in one of the Rishonim that, what about preparing for the bris? You can't do the bris. The earliest time you can do the bris is dawn, is, is uh, early in the morning. Can you prepare beforehand? If it's part of the mitzvah, then you can't do that either beforehand. If it's an independent mitzvah, maybe you can fulfill Zriz Makdim and even before the time of the mitzvah itself. Whatever, I want to give a whole chabur about it. But anyway, yes, we do things with alacrity, with zeal. He got up early. And what, who did he take? Shnei Na'arav says Rashi, Yishmael ve'Eliezer. And we could also, by the way, look through Yishmael's eyes. I'm the firstborn, what about me? Why am I always second fiddle? Why am I neglected? Why am I the second class citizen? What did they do? Well, right. I'm relieved. I'm lucky. Well, it's a tension between relief and maybe a little bit of jealousy or envy. Why did Avram take them? Because you don't go out on a journey like this without having two people with you. You need an entourage. When you travel, you're an Adam Chashev, you don't go without your entourage. That's, that's why it says Rashi. Let's keep going. On the third day, Avram raises his eyes. And he sees the place from a very far distance. What is it called, the place? Ra, says Rashi, Ra Anan Kashura Lahar. He sees a, a, a cloud over the mountain. In other words, he sees the place. What's the place? Says the Balatur, Begamatra Ze Yerushalayim. Es HaMakom is the same numerical value as he sees Jerusalem. Oh, we'll get that one second. Says the Kliyakar. What does it mean, Meirachok? He says, seeing the Shechina, seeing God's dwelling on the Temple Mount, it's like looking at the sun. You see it from very far away, but your eyes, you can't look directly into it. So he says, very similar. 
Shemirachok yachol adam astakaba avolom mikarov. You could see it from afar, but not from close. But Yasser alluded to, we use that term makom as one of God's names. Where else do we use it as one of God's names? Makom. Makom yenachem eschem b'soch shavetzim yushalayim. May God, makom yenachem eschem. May God comfort you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Baruch hamakom baruchu in the Haggadah. Rabbi Salavechik explained that makom is one of God's names. It means when we feel far away from God, that's the name we use for God. When something, when we don't feel God's presence, when we feel that He's not involved in our life, how could He allow this to happen? When do we feel that? In a moment of great loss, exile, and here Avraham. Rav Hirsch says the same thing. Vayaras hamakom merachok. Merachok. The omnipresent. The omnipresent. hamakom merachok. He saw God, but merachok. Why is he asking me to do this? It's the third day. He starts to get a little bit, maybe, of hesitation. He's a little uncomfortable. Vayomer Avram el Arav, He tells Yishmael and Eliezer, Shvulachem po im hachamor. Stay here with the donkey. Vani vaanar nechad kov v'nishtachavev v'nashuva aleichem. And I and the lad, thirty-seven-year-old lad Yitzchak. We're going to go, Ad Ko. Where's Ko? What's Ko? Says Rashi, <coughs> the Medrash What's Ad Ko? Ko Zarecha. Ko Amar Hashem. Every Ko in Tanakh, Chaf the word Ko, Ad Ko. 25. We're going, Ad Ko. Ko Zarecha. We're going, we're going to accomplish something unbelievable. He tells them where we're going. We're going to worship. And we're going to create a legacy. And I'm going to pass on my future. If they were brought up in his house, why didn't someone, we want to come and worship as well? Maybe they said it, but he told them to stay here. And who did he say stay here with? Im Ask the The Gemara learns from here. Okay, this is not going to be very politically correct. But the Gemara learns from here. Im hachamor, am hachamor. Am hadome lachamor. That the offspring of Yishmael are like a donkey, a wild donkey. Avram tells the wild donkey, stay with the wild donkey. Am hadoma lachamor says the kliyakar. Tim lokein havala lemeimer yashiv hachamor imachem. He should have said, "I'm going. The donkey should stay here with you." Why did he say, "You stay here with the donkey"? Lama asa osam tefila elachamor. They're secondary to the donkey. Fishahim domem lachamor. They're like a donkey. Why? Mitzad behem yusam because they're animal like. Him grua mimenu and they're worse than the animal. Hachamor pa abateva vehem achotim beratzon. The donkey, the wild donkey, is just fulfilling its nature. But the wild person has the capacity to be godly and is choosing to be wild. So they're called, the Gemara calls, the offspring of Ishmael, they're like a wild donkey. Okay, no comment. So continuing. Continuing. Avram takes the wood, and puts it on Yitzchak. And v'yekach b'yado he takes the fire of Esamachelas, he takes the, the knife. V'yachushnehem yachtav. And they go. And they go. Rashi says, what do you mean yachtav? It should have just said v'yachushnehem. The two of them go. Here we have a hint to Yitzchak, through Yitzchak eyes. You know what yachtav means? Avram shayodeh shaholech lishkores b'nao. Avram who knew what the end game was. And Hayaholech Baratzon Vasimcha Ki Yitzchak Shlohaya Margish Badavar. So Rashi contends that Yitzchak had no idea where they're going. Okay, we're going off for sacrifice. I'm thirty seven years old. I am the assistant rabbi. I'm going with my father to do a sacrifice. Yitzchak had no idea. The same naivete and innocence through which Yitzchak went, 
is the same way that Avram went, even though Avram knew where he was going. That's the Yachtav. Others say, no, the Yachtav is the opposite direction. That even though Yitzchak knew that this was his, the end, this was the demise, this was the end of the road, he went with the same level of faith, Yachtav, as his father Avram. So you could read that in either, in either direction. He says, Dad, says, yes, son. Right? This is consistent with Rashi's interpretation that at this point Yitzchak is naive. He says, Dad, I, I got the wood on my back and I see you carrying the way to start the fire. Where's the animal? Don't worry, don't worry, Tatala. God will show us. God will provide the animal. The same word again, Yachtav. Maybe there's a hint that the Yachtav is a little different. Maybe Yitzchak's got a little bit of insight now as to where they're heading. Yes? Kind of strange in Pesach, Aleph, and Pesach Zion. Right, he said to his father, and he said father, and he said. Correct. It seems redundant. I don't know. Great, great question. Great question. I'm not sure if any of the commentaries deal with it. Yeah, it's a good. It's a. It's a strange formulation. So they get to the place. That God told them. He builds the altar. They set up the wood. And now he binds his son. And he puts him on the wood. I don't think Yitzchak at this point still thinks that they're looking for an animal. So Yitzchak doesn't tear off the ropes and he doesn't run away. And he doesn't take the axe and kill his father in self-defense. All probably justified reactions. Avram lifts his hand with the knife. To slaughter his son. God calls him. And he says, Avraham, Avram, and he says, Here I am. Why does he call his name twice? Does the angel have a stutter? Avram, Avram. So if you go back to the Ramban and the Sforno that we began with, if you come, well, if you come full circle to how we began, I would like to suggest that the double name means Avraham in potential has become Avraham in reality. That when, when he saw Avraham prepared to fulfill God's word, even though, it, even though it flew in the face of everything Avraham believed, he had fulfilled the test. If the purpose of a test is to go from potential to reality, at that moment, Avraham, Avraham. The potential became reality. Vayomer hineni. Vayomer, he said, Al tishlach yadcha. Unlike our Indian man, to whom there was no angel who said, Stop! The angel tells Avram, stop! Don't do anything. For now I know, Now I know. What do you mean now I know? The last nine tests, if I'm Avram, what do you mean? Now you know? Really? None of the earlier stuff is worth anything? Sarashi says, who said, Now I have something to answer. Those who say, Why do I love you so much? Now I can tell them. You've displayed the most incredible love towards me. But also, it's what we said before. The earlier tests were all consistent with Avram's inclination and predisposition. This was a test with one which went exactly opposite it. So now I know. When you're willing to do that which is entirely opposite 
that which comes naturally to you, now I know that even when you direct that which comes naturally, you're really doing it, you're really doing it for me. Says the Ramban, exactly that. Originally, Avram's faith was in his heart, was in potential. Yeah, potentially Avram had the faith to follow God, whatever he said. God says, whatever I say, let's see. It only became a reality through this test. Really? You'll follow anything I say? Okay, slaughter your son. Avram's prepared to do it. Now God knows you really are prepared to follow anything I say, no matter what it, no matter what it is. There's a lot more to describe on the Pesukim itself. I want to just take a two more minutes to share with you a couple last ideas, not from the verses and the textual analysis, but from outside. One is the Rav. The way Rabbi Soloveitchik read this section, and this comes from his Divrei uh, Hashkafa, one of the book, it's a collection of the lectures of Rabbi Soloveitchik. He said the following, quote, I recoil from all the talk that goes round and round a single topic, that the observance of mitzvahs is beneficial for digestion, for sound sleep, for family harmony, for social position, right? The Rav didn't like the fact, and maybe if he lived today he would be more amenable to it, amenable to it, he didn't like the fact that we were trying to say, yeah, you know what, the Torah makes life so meaningful and beautiful and that's why you should do it because, you know, God's giving us the answer for this world. I, I happen to subscribe to that and I do believe it. And I believe it's our mandate to share with our children and to share with the non-affiliated that the Torah is the answer. It's meaningful, it's purposeful, it's a deeply satisfying life. But the Rav couldn't stand the idea that we're saying, oh, keep Shabbos because it's for you, and do this, it's for you. It's good for digestion and sound sleep and family harmony and social position. The religious act, said the Rav, is fundamentally an experience of suffering. When man meets God, God demands self-sacrifice, which expresses itself in struggle with his primitive passions, in breaking his will, in accepting a transcendental burden, in giving up exaggerated carnal desire, in occasional withdrawal from the sweet and pleasant, in dedication to the strangely bitter, in clash with secular rule, and in his yearning for a paradoxical world that is incomprehensible to others. I mean, the Rav, I mean, is that incredible use of language? But the Rav says that being religious, being observant, don't just dress it up as it's beautiful and it's lovely and it's great and it's meaningful and it's always fun and bliss and great. No. Observance requires sacrifice. It requires suffering. It is sometimes a burden. It requires breaking will. And it requires dedication to bitter and clash with secular. Offer your sacrifice, said the Rav. This is the fundamental command given to the man of religion. The chosen of the nation from the moment that they revealed God occupied themselves in a continual act of sacrifice. God says to Avram, take now your son, your only one, the one whom you love, Isaac. That is to say, I demand of you the greatest sacrifice. I want your son, who is your only son, and also the one whom you love. Don't fool yourself to think that after you obey me and bring your son for a burnt offering, I'll give you another son. When Yitzhak will be slaughtered, you'll remain alone and childless. You'll have no other child. You will live your life in incomparable solitude. I want your only son who is irreplaceable. Neither should you think that you will succeed to forget Yitzhak and remove him from your mind. All your life you will think about him. I'm interested in your son who you love and whom you will love forever. You'll spend your nights awake, picking at your emotional wounds. Out of your sleep you will call for Yitzchak, and when you wake up you will find your tent desolate and forsaken. Your life will turn into a long chain of emotional suffering. And nevertheless, I demand this sacrifice. Clearly, said the Rav, the experience which was rooted in dread and suffering ended in ceaseless joy, 
When Avram removed his son from the altar at the angel's command, his suffering turned into everlasting gladness. He's dread into perpetual happiness. The religious act begins with the sacrifice of oneself and ends with the finding of that self. But man cannot find himself without sacrificing himself prior to the finding. Man cannot find himself without sacrificing himself prior to the finding. So what the Rav means is that did Avram ultimately make a sacrifice? Right? There's a lot of discussion. Maybe Avram did the wrong thing. Maybe he's supposed to tell God, don't, right? There's a big discussion today. Maybe Avram failed the test. Maybe the test he should have said to God, no. The Rav's position is, Avram fulfilled the test and did he sacrifice? The answer is yes. Because the fact that it didn't actually happen in reality doesn't take away from the fact that he was prepared for it to happen. He sacrificed who he was. He sacrificed his thinking his knowledge, his approach, his moral compass, his idea of goodness. He threw it all out the window and said, fine, if you want me to sacrifice my son, I'll do it. The fact that God at the end said stop doesn't take away from the fact that Avram sacrificed all who he was. So did Avram sacrifice, says the Rav? Absolutely. And this is the powerful line to me. Man can, the religious act begins with the sacrifice of oneself and ends with the finding of oneself. But man cannot find himself without sacrificing himself prior to the finding. So when you keep kosher, does it feel good? Is it meaningful? Are you disciplined? Yes, you found something wonderful within yourself. But it begins by giving up the cheeseburger. And don't fool yourself to thinking that you're not giving something up. Is Shabbos, is Shabbos enriching? No question about it. It gives us disconnecting from technology and it's incredible. Does it require first sacrifice? Of course, and don't fool yourself into thinking it doesn't. It's only when you're willing to sacrifice that you then find yourself and then you find the meaning. Religious man, said the Rav, must be willing to sacrifice, must be willing to suffer. It's a very kind of gloomy perspective. And that's what he kind of describes. Avram wakes up early in the morning, but he's going to sacrifice. Rav Cook, and and this is in an article from... uh, the virtual based measures of Gush by Rav Chaim Navon. But he quotes Rav Kook, Rav, Rav, that um, the Avram waking up in the morning was very different. That Avram knew this. And Avram embraced the sacrifices. And Avram was overjoyed by the sacrifice. Right? He describes from Rav Kook, where is this? I'm sorry, one more second. Avram rose up early in the morning. The peace of mind of his holy soul, the holy father, the mighty native, did not cease. His sleep was not gone from him because of the clear knowledge which came to him through the word of God. No feeling of darkness, of negligence, or depression became intermixed in the longings of this purified heart. He goes on and on, Rav Kook, in his beautiful way of writing. But as opposed to the Rav who describes that Avram knew he was making a sacrifice, and it was a sacrifice that hurt, and yet he was willing to do it, says Rav Kook, you know why Avram was up early that morning? Because he couldn't sleep. Not because he was so anxious and depressed, because he was so excited and filled with joy. God wants me to do it. I have perfect clarity that this is the right thing to do and I'm so excited to do it. It's a very different perspective of this whole thing. And the last perspective, which we don't have time for, but I'll tell it to you, you should go look it up yourself, is there's an incredible Medrash Tanchuma that describes, Vayakam Vayilech, Avram got up and he went. It says the Satan, the Satan accosted him, appeared to him first in the guise of an old man. Where are you going? How could you do this? You're supposedly the preacher of morality. And Avram went anyway. And then appeared to him, the Medrash continues, the Satan came in the guise of a large river. 
and said to Avram, you can't cross this river, you're going to drown. And Avram kept walking and made it across the river. And then it appeared to him in the guise of the next thing. And the Satan kept coming back to him until Avram overcomes each of them. And he put one foot in front of the other until he found himself on that third day. So Nechama Leibowitz, Levracha, explains very beautifully, very different perspective on the whole Akedah. You know, you know who the Satan is, says Nechama Leibowitz? Not an external outside voice. It was himself. Avram's internal voice, he struggled. He was filled with doubt. Avram struggled with doubt. And this is a precedent, and it's reassuring to us to know it's okay to have doubt. There's nothing wrong with having doubt. Avram's filled with doubt. And every moment he confronts doubt, he overcomes it, the doubt comes back. First it's the old man. What do you mean? You're the moral voice. How could you do this? And Avram silences him. Then it's the river. Then it's Avram each time overcomes. Does he ever fully get rid of the doubt? Says Nacham Aleibovitz, no. What does the Pasuk say? He raises his eyes that basically um, Avram puts one foot in front of the other till he finds himself on the third day there. He's still filled with doubt even at the moment he raises the axe. But by putting one foot in front of the other he arrives at the destination. And the message is that we are sometimes overwhelmed with doubt and it's okay to have doubt. But keep putting one foot in front of the other. Get to the end of the day. Do what's right. Live with the doubt. Don't try to feel guilty because of the doubt and don't try to extinguish the doubt necessarily. The presence of the doubt is okay. It was okay for Avram. Put one foot in front of the other till and behold on the third day you arrive where you're supposed to go. So the Rav, Rav Kook, Nechamalebevitz, three different, what the Mepharshim leave out they all struggle with and write about extensively. Again, we could spend 5,000 more hours on this uh, incredible topic, but I wish you a wonderful rest of the week and a wonderful Shabbos.